acknowledge and pay my respects to the first storytellers on whose traditional lands we meet tonight, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. I celebrate their culture as one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging for caring for this wonderful country that we have the privilege of calling home and living and working on every day. I'd also like to extend my respects to the traditional owners of the lands on which our audience, both online um, and here tonight, might have been born on, might live on if you've travelled. Thank you for joining us in Canberra this evening. Now, it's my very great pleasure to welcome Christos Cholkas back to the library and to Canberra this evening. But in doing so, I am experiencing a very small amount of deja vu. <laughs> Some of you may have been here with us exactly six years ago to the day and the hour, <laughs> Halloween. Here I was standing at this lectern and welcoming Christos to the library to talk about his then newly released book, Barracuda. And if that wasn't coincidental enough, on that night six years ago, Christos was joined in conversation by none other than the person <laughs> joining us this evening. Genevieve Jacobs. So we've brought the band back together again for another round and hopefully it won't be six years before we do it all over again. We're saved from a complete Groundhog Day experience though by the fact that Christos and Genevieve aren't going to be talking about Barracuda this evening but about Christos's new novel Damascus. Set far from the Australian suburbs, Damascus is vivid, visceral and ambitious. It's taking on nothing less than the birth and establishment of the Christian church. And drawing on the letters of St. Paul, Damascus is turning its lens to class, religion, masculinity, patriarchy, colonisation, refugees, the ways in which nations, societies, communities, families and individuals are united and divided. Such a very small topic, really, isn't it? There's going to be a lot for us to talk about tonight, and Christos and Genevieve are going to lead us on the journey, not just through the ancient history of the Christian church, but I think also on Christos's own journey in how this wonderful book came to be. Please join me in welcoming Christos Chalkers and Genevieve Jacobs. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Catherine. And I have a vivid memory of talking to Christos about Barracuda, but I hadn't actually realised until just now that we were the same day, the same time, and, and what a pleasure it is. Um, to be back with one of Australia's most interesting and thoughtful authors with a book that is quite the departure or is it from the world of Barracuda and the slap? Because as, as Catherine says, Christos has chosen to write about the world of the very early church. Of those who knew Jesus or hear Yeshua, when they were alive, where religion was about radical outsider beliefs, things that were deeply threatening to the status quo. And Damascus, of course, because the common thread is that fascinating figure, Saul the persecutor, who becomes Paul the great evangelist. Christos, wonderful to be, to be back here. Wonderful to be with you and wonderful to be here um, with all of you, including uh, old friends. It's lovely to see you in the audience. Oh, it's a very candid thing. Old friends, absolutely. Tell me what drew you to examining the world that Christianity came out of. Now, there's been a lot of historical fiction 
some of it is just terrible about the time <laughs> yes. of Jesus. Yes. Why, why did you want to enter into this early Christian world? Well, um, it, it's always difficult to, um, to give one answer to, to that question because I think there are different paths and, and, and streams to, to where a work that obsesses you comes from. Um, the, but if I was to give you um, uh, one answer, and one answer that actually connects all my writings, is the, uh, the idea of faith. Mm. And, and what is it to have a faith? Mm. And I, I, th- I think that in different ways all my books have been struggling with that theme. And because I've, I've been struggling with that all my life as well, uh, I was talking you know, with Catherine just before, and she was saying, oh, you bastard, I don't want to, you know, you've made me want to re- read St. Paul. Um, and it actually, her rea- that reaction is, is, is my reaction. I had my first encounter with Paul. I grew up in the Eastern Orthodox faith. My first encounter with Paul really wasn't until I moved from um, an inner city school that was highly migrant, with a lot of people who, who shared my parents' faith, and then moved to an outer suburban school that was quite Anglo. I felt quite lost, and it was at a time when my sexuality, I, I just realised I, I, I had these sexual urgings, urges and feelings that I did not want to have. Mm-hmm. And I, made it, I, I wanted to make a deal with God that mm-hmm. if that got taken from me, mm-hmm. then I would be a good Christian. I think that's a lot of people have experienced something similar. Yeah. I couldn't read Paul um, at that point. Because, uh, all, I could, all I could read was the prohibition against homosexuality that is in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. I, and where this is linked to the question of, of faith is I, I, I had joined an evangelical Christian group. It only lasted 15 months. I got up one, one day from Bible class, it was a really clear memory and I said, I cannot believe in this God. You know, this God will not want me, so I'm going to I'm gonna um, I'm gonna stop believing. But what I did was I replaced very, very quickly when I look back on it, it felt like it was a much longer period, but I replaced my faith in a Christian God with a faith in something called socialism or communism. Mm-hmm. And then I had my and I Going right back to your original question, uh, Genevieve, it's, uh, I only realised this just the other day, talking to someone about why I wrote this book. Um, it, it just suddenly the clarity came to it. I had my own road to Damascus moment where I had to deal with another loss of faith, and that was a loss of faith in, in communism, in socialism, when, it was, uh, when I went to Eastern Europe very soon after the collapse of, of communism. And I had to take into account the horrific damage mm. that ideology and belief had done to, to peoples mm. that came from instincts that were, were positive, mm. about justice, about changing the world, about equality. And that, that, that was not an overnight process, but the connection to... The, the Christianity I grew up with is it made me realise that maybe I was blaming the institutions um, for a history and 
maybe I should just go back right to the beginning of what were the ethical precepts that were there at, at the beginning of a prophet's journey in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And that is absolutely the remarkable and the surprising thing about this book, that it draws us back as 21st century Australians into this remarkable early Christianity um, in, a, in a world that's filled with violence, and I want to discuss more about that in a moment. But tell me about what surprised you when you went back deep into these years when, when Jesus had been dead only a few decades, when people still lived who had known Yeshua, who, who had seen his extraordinary charism. Uh, look, the, one of the... So what I did with this novel was... Um, when I came to the decision that I would like to try and, and write a book about Paul, and I didn't know what at that stage what the form of this book would be. I didn't actually know whether it would be a fiction. I, I just knew that this was something I wanted to pursue. And I made a decision that for the first year I was not going to put pen to paper. And I was just going to immerse myself in research and reading. And I had, I, I set this goal which was, I was not going to read anything written before the 4th century BC and nothing written after the 3rd century AD except commentary, theology and philosophy and history about that period. And of course what I also needed to do was go back to the Bible and going back to the actual biblical text and that both the, the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible was really hearing Paul's voice. Um, really hearing how radical it was mm -hmm. to say that the first will be last and the last will be first. How radical it was to say that one of the greatest ethical duties is to love the stranger mm -hmm. as much as you love your mother or your partner or mm -hmm. your sibling. Mm -hmm. the, that they still sound revolutionary and radical in our world today. Uh, and, and then there was a kind of an anger that these ethical ideas, which must have sounded so shocking in the world, would, um, I think, have been corrupted mm. by the history of the churches. Mm. In, you know, that we have paid so much attention to two or three lines written about sexual morality and very, very little to the hundreds of lines that are about our duty to the stranger. A duty to one another. <coughs> and it, it is all the more remarkable because this is a world that is filled with violence. The book opens with a woman being stoned to death. The lives of many of the characters are underlined with violence, not least the, the absolutely common practice of leaving unwanted female or disabled children out to die. There are dreadful scenes in here of the circus where people are literally killed for the amusement of the crowd. It feels so so blood-drenched. Where does that come from? Oh, look, you know where you... Um, that goes to the previous question. You said, what did I find? I found... Uh, I, I found that brutality in doing the research. I mm. found that... And, um, you know, I love reading the ancient Greek. I love reading the, um, the, the ancient Greek texts. I love reading <laughs> the philosophy. But what I found was that this was a slave society. Mm. Mm. And that... You know, the, the, the accounts of what happened to people in, in the arena mm. are just horrific for people's entertainments. That if you, were, if you were born a slave, if you were captured in war, for the delight of an audience like this, 
um, you could be a young girl or a young boy and you could be torn apart. And that was for our delight. And that was because your life had no value because you were a slave. And I think the other thing I found was that the slave voice had been omitted from that history because the history we have is the history of noble people. Yeah. Is the, 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 the history of, of what we would maybe call a, an aristocratic cl um, class. Well, history is written by the victors. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. and I guess that became, a really that became really important to me in terms of writing this novel because I think, because I'm a novelist, I'm not a historian, but I think what was radical at the heart of the Christian message was that it spoke to the slave mm -hmm. mm. and that it made the slave the centre of, of ideas of ethics and justice. Well, th this idea of compassion for the broken and suffering is absolutely remarkable in this world. It is in no way commonplace, and that was a real challenge in reading this, to think of a world in which the idea of compassion for the vulnerable was entirely absent for people whom, for whom that was just simply not in their ethical mindset. It did not occur to them that, that, that those who were, who were damaged, disabled, uh, uh, dishonoured, had a value of any kind. Yes, I mean, one of the things that, that came, came out clearly in, in the reading I was doing was that, you know, Judaism, Christianity emerges from Judaism, mm. you know, and, 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 and we're talking, you know, the, the novel is set in a period where this is not a Christian faith, this is a, a Jewish faith. Mm. And that there is, what is the best way to explain this? Because I owe this, this understanding. So this is a novel that has been forming, I think, in my mind for a long, long time. And I remember there's a, a friend of mine I've got for this who's an amazing historian, uh, a, a student of history. And I, this is a long time ago and we were sitting down talking in the, one of those long conversations you have right till dawn, right, about these ideas. And Fortis was saying to me, you know, we were talking about what was happening to these people in this world, how brutal it was, and how there's so little reflection in the Roman and Greek texts about this suffering. And it is what it is, suffering. And he went, imagine being that girl or that boy in the arena, right? Where just because of your caste or your class, the, someone can do whatever they like to, to you. They can throw you to animals, they can rape you, they can use you to uh, mine um, uh, until you die on your feet from the exhaustion of work. And that is not being melodramatic. That is the world we're, we're, we're talking about. And you hear what to us sounds like a savage code now in 2019. Justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you're that young girl or young boy, you would go, that is an amazing, that's a faith I can Mm. believe in because at least that makes sense mm. Mm. whereas I guess what I'm saying is the world these people were living in in that sense of what we understand as compassion and justice was senseless mm. yeah absolutely. it was absolutely senseless yeah, absolutely and and so right at the very beginning we have a Christian woman who's being stoned to death who says let he who was without sin cast the first stone and in the context you have just described that is a profoundly challenging statement because it says to people, look into your own heart. Look not at yourself as someone from a caste, a class, a race with the ability to command. It says, look into your own heart as a human being on an equal level. 
Oh, do you know, you know, this book went through a lot, a lot of drafts. And the, and the first one was so messy. I mean, it was terrible. It was, and I'm, I'm being genuine about it. That's what happens. You know, you, you, you're trying to find your way into uh, this work that you want to do. And for anyone who's writers, who is a writer in this room, you know that. You know that the first draft is, you just have to get it out, no matter how, how bad it is. You need to, put, to, to do that work. But right from the beginning, the stoning was how I wanted to open the novel. And I, I, and I hope, I, I wanted to actually do justice to, you know, this is not just come out of myself. This does come out of, people who have been really important in my life and what they have taught me. And very, very early on, I was a boy in primary school and I had this teacher who was one of those wonderful teachers that, that really actually listened. And we were in a very migrant school and there was a girl, uh, her parents were from um, Yugos what was called Yugoslavia then, but they had been divorced and one of the one of the group of boys were calling her a slut because, you know, this was the 70s, people were cruel and these mm. kids, they just were parroting what they heard from parents. And this teacher sat us down and told us the, the story of Jesus coming, across, coming into this circle of men who are about to stone this woman for being an adulteress. The woman taken in adultery, yes. Right? Yeah. And she made us feel what it was to be that woman terrified mm. and she made us we were only nine or ten made us really think about what it meant to say if you are without sin mm. then raise a stone and just hurl it mm. and that that message has stayed with me for four decades now yeah. <laughs> and I went to Ms Lunerman I really owe that and that that's what I'd forgotten when I turned my back to Christianity, that they, that was something so radical in that message. And, you know, guys, I'm writing this over the last six years. And what is Twitter if not the hurling of yeah. <laughs> our, our bloody first stones? <laughs> like, no, what, you know, that the... I was just uh, this, this uh, morning coming, um, coming on the plane, I was just reading this essay someone had written about contemporary culture. And, they said something really interesting about, sorry, it's, I know it's a tangent, but it, it just really fascinated me. You know, in George Orwell's 1984, there's the two-minute hate, mm. where you, you stand mm. up and hate for yeah. two minutes. And he went, is this, is, is this social media? Yeah. <laughs> has, has we actually created the... the uh, I, want, I wanted to be faithful as a writer to the world I was trying to communicate to you, mm. what it was like to be... Um, a slave, what it was like to be a woman, mm. what it was like to be um, a Jew, what it was it like to be someone who had given, given up family, given up their life to follow these words of a, of a prophet 2,000 years ago. Mm. But I did want what I was writing about to echo to our contemporary moment. Mm. Yeah. So let's then, let's then talk about Paul, Saul, a man who is driven by shame and guilt about himself. He is absolutely eaten up with self-loathing. Tell me who he is as a character in this book and why you hang this novel around him. So, so 
Saul Paul as as the character who is the centre of of this novel, rather than the historical Paul. Well, yeah, look, um, I, I will say about this novel that you know people ask you what are you writing about, and you go Saint Paul, <laughs> uh, and I go really. <laughs> uh, is there it, a television series in that, they ask you? <laughs> unfortunately, I often go, who was... You know, that. but uh, I'm actually not writing about a saint. That, no. that was the first... Uh, the first two drafts, I think they were real failures, and that was because I hadn't made the right... I was, t I was still trying to be f faithful to a, the kind of mythological... Uh, superstructure of, the, of, of Christian faith. So, you know, on the road to Damascus, did this man, Paul, see the physical Jesus resurrected? Well, you make that very real. You make the light a very absolute. It's, it's not a metaphor. When, yes. When, when Paul is struck on the road to Damascus, it is a profound physical experience. But we never see the, the, the no, body of Jesus. No, we and don't. That, that and yes. that was very, mm. very conscious. And that, that only... It was only in the redraft. I thought, mm. this is not the story I want to tell. So to, to, to mm. your question about Paul, reading his letters, and to, you know, Paul talks about, you know, he's very honest in the letters. For those, uh, for those who haven't read um, uh, the Pauline uh, epistles, like he talks about his struggle. The whole of Romans is the struggle of how do you come to faith? How do you deal with the burden of faith? I thought... I've got to create a character who is not a saint. I'm not talking about a myth. I don't want to talk about that myth. So I have got to create a Paul that is at a moment of crisis when we see him. Because what would make someone give up their family, give up their religious background, give up everything to follow, to follow someone? And I can, I, for me, the only way I could find him was through a point of crisis. I think the other thing, choice I made was when it came to Saul, all the other characters are written in the first person. But Saul is written in the third person because the other characters, are, I, I think, are doing... This is always where you're a bit wary about the author describing their own work, but what the other characters are doing, what I am still struggling with doing, is to try to make sense of what Paul is saying mm. who Paul is mm. and who um, and what Paul means to me. Yeah. I love his letters and this novel can own, that's its true beginning is that I found I found at a moment of crisis in my life in my late 20s I returned to Paul's letters and I found a voice that offered me and I hadn't been able to hear the voice when I was 13 14 15 right because I thought he's words were saying, you are cut off from God. And I heard, in this moment of crisis, what I did was heard a voice that was saying, there is a way to find peace and solace. Mm. That, you know, that, 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 that it is possible, it is a struggle, but it is mm. possible. And because of my own journey, I wanted to make Paul's understanding coming from his own struggles with his body, sexuality, mm. his desires, his passions. I, I thought that that's how I wanted to paint him. Mm. And, and, and on that, firstly, the doubts don't leave him. You know, right until the very end of his life, 
when he's old and he's imprisoned and he's, he's raving and calling on Jesus and saying, why don't you come back, you bastard? Because, because Christianity at that point is almost like an apocalyptic death cult. I mean, the end yeah. times are very close. They are absolutely fervently believing that Jesus will return. So first of all, there's the doubt, the huge mm-hmm. doubt that riddles this, this extraordinarily charismatic and powerful figure. He, he's, he's still wrestling with what Yeshua means. Yes, and I mean that's the, I mean that 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 question of doubt is central. You can't write a novel about faith without also writing a novel about doubt. Yeah. You can't actually have a system of beliefs without actually having deal, to deal with doubt. I think one of the things that I do find difficult about the present age is that we have made doubt suspicious, yeah. and I don't think I think doubt is essential. We have to we keep having to ask those questions. Look. That prom- so uh, that one of the struggles for this, this man, Paul, is that he has been moved and shaken. He has felt the light. He has seen the light. He has embraced what is, I think, best in the prophets, Jesus' teachings. Mm. Right? He's taken that. Mm. But he's taken that believing that this man will return at any time. Yeah. Right? That didn't happen. Mm. It has not happened. And so the... What I also wanted to explore, and I, I, I'm, I do this through a character called Timothy, who yeah, also yeah. Uh, lived and was Paul's companion, and is to go, what happens to this faith when Jesus is, is not on the horizon? Mm. And what does it happen to the commandment to be celibate? Mm. What, is it, what does it mean for the commandment of leaving all material possessions aside? when this is a prolonged future. That's a much harder struggle. Mm. And, and that moment that you talk about in, his, when he's in, in Rome is, is my getting to what <laughs> I think all of us who've ever, who are Christian now or who have been Christian in the past, we've always been at that moment. I've been in that moment yeah. where I've banged the floor going, yeah. when will this end? Yeah. When and will this suffering yeah. end? And you say, you say, speak, God. Well, yeah. If you believe, you say, speak. Yeah. Where are you? Where are you in the midst of this? Uh, Timothy is also a fascinating and pivotal figure in this book because Paul has a, an electric obsession with Timothy and Timothy himself is entranced by Thomas, who is the mysterious figure of Yeshua's twin. There is a certain cult-like eroticism about these relationships. I mean, look, you know, one of the things that... <laughs> You know, being actually being involved in both evangelical Christianity and being involved in sectarian communism—they both. <laughs> are, <laughs> there's a lot of this is uh, repressed. Like there's a yeah. lot of repressed sexuality in um, in both those experiences. In my in my um, experience of it, um, I think that they. I think the question of love is is so central to Paul's words and the and these uh, to, to to explain something about that so because I think this is the probably uh, the Thomas is the character that is the most heretical in the mm. book so one of the things I so I hope it's all right if I just do a detour to Absolutely. explain um, no, we're going to talk heresy in a minute. You go for it. <laughs> um, so what happened 
um, once the there, there were so many currents when you do the research to what was happening in um, Anatolia and in the Middle East in the that first uh, and second century after the death of Christ of this figure is called Christ and there were so many currents of thought about what his message was uh, when it became I think from my understanding when this faith became the the religion of the Roman Empire, a lot of those paths, because they were more troublesome, mm. they, were, they were difficult, mm. became erased from our history. And then there was an astonishing moment in 1948 where in Egypt, in Nag Hammadi, a place in, the, in, in Upper Egypt, uh, a, a young shepherd boy discovered uh, some texts that had been hidden from history for 1700 years. And they were gospels, they were letters from the early Christians. There was a gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's a gospel of Judas, there's um, a gospel of Peter. There are ancient Greek texts and, um, and Roman texts. And one of the gospels is the gospel of Thomas. The, the, and Thomas means twin. In, in, um, and he's referred to in the Bible as uh, Thomas. Uh, Vivimos, which is the Greek word for twin. And there's an apocryphal legend that he was Jesus' twin brother. And what is astonishing, it's a Gnostic text, so it's a difficult text, but what's astonishing about Th Thomas is that there is no resurrection story. Mm. Right? So Jesus does not return from, from, from dying on the cross. Mm. So that's an astonishing... When I read that, Genevieve, I thought... What does this mean for this faith that I, got, I grew up in? Mm. What mm. does it mean if there is no resurrection story? Mm. And, and you are absolutely prefiguring that fundamental divide in the church. You've got Paul, the great evangelist, and Thomas, who is an equally powerful and compelling figure in and of himself. But it's that, that split between the intellectual soldiers and the people of the earth. That, that then dominates hundreds of years before it's resolved, really, and we were just having this conversation earlier by, by Rome, by the might mm. and the power of Rome and, and the church being founded in Rome. But it's just occurred to me as you're speaking that, of course, when we write the Gospels, it's an attempt to claim history because the idea that's implicit in the Gospels is that these are the people who were there and therefore they know. They, yes. Yeah. And, and so when you, you suddenly encounter these versions that say... This is our version of this history. We were there, and it, it, it. I mean, it was one of the most exhilarating moments. I'm, I'm thinking like I haven't. I wanted to do that, proceed, but I want to answer your previous question too, which was about that relationship then between Thomas and Paul and and Timothy. That one of my experiences, or one of the things that that I think is really dangerous in all. Um, belief systems is fundamentalism, mm. where you become, um, where you believe that, and you do it for the absolute, you know, because you are angry at the, the way poverty is in this world, inequality is in this world, you are angry the way misogyny is in this world, you are angry about the way race is in, in the world, that you, you will do, that, that you believe you know what is righteous and you know what is right. And you efface the human 
the individual human. Mm. I've, if I've learned, if I, if there's a moral lesson that means anything to me, at at this stage of my life, is that that's a really dangerous thing, and I do not believe that the ends justify the means, mm. no matter how righteous. Sorry, to to, mm. to answer that question, and for me. Paul is, a, is charismatic and Thomas is charismatic and Timothy is the figure who is trying to do the dance of understanding what is, what is important about the ethics of these two men. Mm. That's, mm. That's, mm. that's why I've created that, mm. that, that triptych, if you like. This, this is actually where I made the connection with books like The Slap and Barracuda because I thought about your examination of what drives people to believe that they are right against all odds, what makes them push through for what they rightly or wrongly believe in? Uh, look, I, I mean, my very good friend Angela Savage, uh, who's a writer and I adore, and um, she made that connection just the other day to Barracuda. Because again, mm. you, you're not actually thinking about it, but you know, I'd, I'd said in this, in this space when we were talking six years ago <laughs> to, the, to the hour yeah. <laughs> that... Um, I had a card above the desk which was, how do you be a good person in this world? That mm. that was the motivating drive to, to mm. understanding Paracuta. And, and she said, well, the, this novel is, a connection, is still connected to that. It's just that you've gone right back to first principles, if you want. You're going right back to, to, to the, the Christian world, mm. to well, when it formed. But, but I think that the other thing that struck me is, is a lot of your work previously has examined things like class, hierarchies, um, and here in Damascus, there's a great deal about how we define what is right, wrong, good or bad, and who fits where. So one of the things that's really striking about this, for example, is the passage about Vrassus, the crippled ex-Roman soldier, who lives in this world where slaves are raped, where people literally bathe themselves in blood. And one of the things that you do very well in this is make us understand what it is to be Vrassus, who is revolted by the Christian rituals. Yeah. Here is a man who literally covers himself in the blood of animals so that his wife will conceive and bear a son. But he looks at the Christian rituals, their equality by their communion in every sense, and he finds it filthy beyond belief what those Christians are doing. I think, <laughs> and we, you know, so I'm going to continue uh, because this is this is fundamental to 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 Vrasis, this character, mm. to a conversation we began just outside Geneva. <laughs> that I people will have asked me for a long time, and will keep asking me, "Are you a Christian?" And I'm not. Uh, and I think the important reason is that I don't believe in the resurrection. You know, I do actually believe, um, I, I, of course, I, I do believe this, uh, this figure existed. I do actually believe in so much of um, uh, the gospel message. But no, I don't believe in the resurrection. The other thing I do not believe in is I think one of the, for me, was a damaging thing about Christianity is the separation of um, our humanity into... Uh, a pure soul mm. or spirit and a corrupt flesh. Mm. I think that's done a lot of damage historically. And, you know, I'm writing this under the shadow of what's been happening in the Catholic Church. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. I think that, that, that's, that's a, a really destructive tendency, I think, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in Christianity and what, what puts me at a remove from it. Mm. And Vrasis is a character who is... 
so impossible for us in our contemporary mentality to understand, but what I wanted to do as a writer was be honourable to him mm. and go that just because I do not share his code, because it is so, so antithetical to what, who I am and to what I believe, but if I'm going to create this character, I want us to actually think he is a man of conviction. Yes. And I hope that's what I've done. I, th I think he is. I think he is a man of honour and principle. And the capacity that you have here is to, is to let us sit in that world and not be disgusted by his beliefs, but to understand the power of them, the belief in, in the God, in the, in the sun, in the power of blood and earth and brothers bonding in war. And it, it actually was a moment of really stark insight for me into the whole cult of the soldier yes. uh, in Roman religious beliefs. So you, you gave us that insight. I remember years ago, Genevieve, I, uh, one of my favourite, um, uh, I think he's a remarkable writer of the 20th century, is the uh, Japanese writer Endo. Mm. And, uh, you know, for those of you who are familiar with his work, but for those of you who are not, he's, one of his great novels is called Silence, and it was made into a film a few years ago by Martin Scorsese. And, and Endo's interesting because he's a, Caf a Japanese Catholic, yeah. so that, you know, it's a very... And there's a long history of martyrdom there. There's yes. a lot of blood in Japanese Catholicism. There's a lovely mm. passage in, in, his, um, in one of the essays he, he, he wrote about what it was to first, as a, a person growing up in the, in, in the Japanese world, to actually con confront the crucifixion mm. and his visceral nausea at this god dead god mm. all he could see was that was the flesh mm. and um i think that's been an inspiration that i carried that through into writing Brassus. Yeah. if you that that we we've uh, it was really important for me to try and strip as much as i could away of the last two thousand years when i was writing this novel mm. and to try and go back and to see what it would mean for these people to be confronted with the idea of a uh, and the, crucif the crucifixion, which has become something that we take so for granted now, if you can step back into that world, that was the, that was the most vile of tortures, right? That was meant for the runaway slave. Mm. That was meant for the rebel. That, that was meant as a symbol for the, for the Romans, that you were the most abject of, per you, you know, this is the worst thing we can do for you. Mm. So imagine then saying, <laughs> Your God is a crucified God. Mm. That's, mm. that's why Paul writes mm. of it as a, an outrage and a scandal. Mm. I, I'm tempted to go down a whole other <laughs> rabbit hole um, about Japan and samurais and Bushido and, and the idea of the death cult and the, the pursuit of death as the highest form of honour. But let's, 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 just, let's just park that for a minute. Um, but uh, one of the things, I said at the very beginning that often books about this period in history have been dreadful and that's because they're weighed down by the history. Now you could have made this into a very worthy weighty book but in fact this is very much about the emotions. So I wonder about the process of writing it and getting that tone right. So what we do enter into is an historically informed but emotionally purposeful and accurate understanding of people's motivations. I mean Genevieve I think that is the that that is, as a writer, that was the uh, really the paramount question. Yeah. How do I, how do I convince you that you are 
in this world 2,000 years ago? What language do I, I, I use? Uh, a friend, Gina Vathulka, said a really smart thing years ago. She said, don't make it sound like Life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I, you know, I have to stay in mind, you know, that don't let them talk like that. But I, I, I wanted to be... I, there are, there are two, two things, and they sound like they are opposing, but I, they, 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 they really came through in, in the research. That one is, these people are not us. Mm. They do not have our consciousness. They, they do not have our histories. So they are strangers mm. to us. You know, to go back 2,000 years ago is, is to... It, we would... I, I use the term derangement. You know, if if so, if you, you could go in a time machine and can, and you are to meet someone from two thousand years ago, it doesn't matter where they were. If they could be from here, mm. it would be derangement mm. because how do you how do you communicate? Yeah. But what we have in that in that Anatolian, Greek, Roman, um, uh, Persian, um, Judean world is we actually have writing of people. You cannot read the Jewish Bible and not read about justice. You cannot read the Jewish Bible and not read about love. Mm. So, and you cannot read the Jewish Bible and not read about shame. Mm. So what, so I, I, what I tried to do with every draft, just try to do is stay true to both those things. To go, you will never be able to find that, you know, you're going to have to use a language that is in part contemporary because you don't know how people spoke back mm. then, right? It's like, it, it, that, that's impossible. But do not forget that these were actually humans as we are human. Mm. And maybe they... I guess what, I'm what I discovered in writing this book are that there are universals. You know, that, that, that I, think, I think people loved family. Mm. I think people loved each other, whether that was a platonic love or an erotic love. 2,000 years ago. I think people mm. did experience suffering mm. and that, 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 that just became something that I had to hold really close to me all the way through mm. s structuring this book. Well, well, certainly one of the very powerful parts for me was um, in the, the, the second part of this book, the story of Lydia, who is the first uh, non-Jewish um, adherent to, as they call it, the Nazarene sect, and she's a woman who becomes an outcast because her baby, her... Her first baby has been taken away from her because it's a girl. She casts everything to save her second baby who is terribly disabled. And the power that, with which she managed to imbue that sort of desperate maternal feeling of utter connection, you know, the, the, the blood calling to blood, the heart to heart of being a mother, was to, was to really sort of say, it, it was never okay to put babies out to no. die even if it was socially sanctioned and, and even if you could construct a world in which people understood the reasons for putting babies out to die, no mother is ever going to feel that that, that was something that passed without, without emotional contact. And it's also, I mean, that, you know, I think... Uh, sorry to be a bit wanky here, but, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I, I think for a while, when I was a young man, I was influenced by a lot of postmodernism. Mm which would have said that there was no moral, you know, that mm. all moral mm. and ethical principles are rel uh, yeah, relative, relative, right? Yeah. Mm. But again, what was enlightening about going back to, to actually reading these texts was that actually you hear the words of people who were stricken by 
mm. by the abandoning of children and the mm. only faith in the Roman world that spoke against that act or did not uh, participate in that act, mm. at least in principle, like yeah. in terms of its it, of in ter terms of its law, L O R E, yeah. was the Jewish were the Jewish people. Yeah. So that so you you know Lydia's she comes to Paul through you know through what she hears from the Jewish people mm. around her. Lydia was like her voice is essential because what was essential right from those early days when you sit down and work out how you're going to strike, once the research had finished and I could pick up the pen, I knew that I wanted to write, um, I, that the woman's voice had to be in this novel. Right? Because I think one, the other thing you found, in, what I've discovered in the re research, is that Christianity has effaced, has, um, has scratched out how important women were in this early faith. And I mean, you might, you, a lot of you may know this, but you can go into Eastern Turkey, you can go to caves where the early Christians were, um, were, were congregating when it was still a dangerous sect, you know, an outlawed sect in large parts of the Roman world. And there are, icon, you know, what we would call icons, representations but of the early Christians, and the women have been literally scratched out from, from mm. the, those images. And that was done by the later church, mm. by the later church fathers. So, and Lydia's, in the book of Acts of the canonical Bible, we're told that Lydia was the first Greek convert, or mm. person who took up the, the way, the, the Nazarene sect. That's all we knew of her. But I just kind of thought, she will be the character. But initially, Genevieve, I was gonna write through her slave goodness. Okay. I wanted to make her slave the central character. Mm. So the first two drafts, I were kind of doing this battle to make goodness work, but what I discovered was that the hierarchies, the divisions of caste were so bitterly strong that I couldn't actually have her as a character in interacting in the way mm. to, to write the kind of novel I did. And it was, I really tried, I really did try, but it, did, it just was not working. And that's when I thought, on the third draft, I just went, maybe what I should do is write through Lydia's voice mm. herself. Mm. And that, I mean, it was very rough as guts, but that happened in like a, a two weeks. I actually wrote 35,000 words because suddenly it freed me up. I could, I could have her there with Paul. I could have her there with Timothy. Yeah. She's an extraordinarily powerful figure. I'm going to open up to questions in just a moment, but before I do so, it just struck me when Catherine was, was introducing us and she mentioned all sorts of themes like masculinity, refugees and so on and so forth, and I thought, I have read this book in completely a Christian prism. I have, I have read this as somebody who is still a Catholic. We had a, a talk about religion and faith um, before we came on. Has anything changed for you in the way that you view Christianity today and the church through the process of writing this and immersing yourself so deeply in this world? Look, I think that uh, I feel much more confident now of what value there is in Christianity. Mm. Like, so I think that, um, uh, yes, I feel a confidence about that and I feel a conf I mean, one of the things I'd really like is to actually talk and argue and debate with Christians about this book because, you know, we're, you know, I keep saying about it, I, it is heretical but I don't think it's blasphemous. Mm. I hope, you know, you just want to 
You want any reader of your work, whatever their faith tradition, whatever, wherever they come from, to... I hope that they come to it and realise what I'm trying to do is something sincere. Mm. And I would, I would just say that I'm writing it from this time and this place and this context. And we keep talking about the, Judeo, the Judeo-Christian foundation of, um, mm. of, of the, the Western world we, we inhabit now. I think, we, I think it's actually Judeo-Christian, Roman, Greek. Mm. And that, so to your question of what I've discovered is that that aspect of our history is not talked about often enough. And that's why Timothy is, you know, he is one of the paramount characters in the book because he is born to a Greek pagan father and to a Jewish Greek mother, uh, uh, to a Jewish Mm. Greek mother. Mm. And that also existed in the ancient world. And that exists, you know, that we are, you know, the the question of the refugee, the question of the stranger, the question of how do you build a multicultural world? Mm. We're still struggling with, with, with these things. And What's astounding going back 2,000 years is people were, in different ways, were struggling with that back then.